Romans chapter 5, and we are going to finish out the chapter this morning. Probably not a bad thing to do that every now and again, just to say hello. Yes, this means we are Baptist. (laughs) Uh, I I didn't say the shake hands. Remember that next time. (laughs) So here in Romans chapter 5, our text today is going to be verses 18 to 21 of God's holy word. This is really bringing about the conclusion of Paul's argument of justification by faith alone. And just to walk through this once again, just so we can see where he is ending up here, we begin... Or, well, this whole discussion began in, first, uh, in the first chapter. Uh, after Paul gives his initial greetings, just like he normally does, he begins to indict, really, all the world under sin. In chapter 1, verse 18, the very familiar passage is, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Paul goes into a number of things that the Gentiles specifically are committing in regards to their rebellion against the Lord. That the Gentile nations are notorious for heaping up to themselves idols bowing down and worshiping these idols, not giving thanks to the one true God. They commit all kinds of sexual immoralities, as you read later on there in chapter 1 of Romans. God gives them over because of, because of their idolatry, because of them not giving thanks to him. He gives them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to, to, so that their bodies rather would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So you have God giving them up to degrading passions, women exchanging the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also men abandoning the natural function of the woman and burned in their lust towards one another. Men committing uh, indecent acts with each other and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. You have those that are mentioned in the text as well that give hearty approval to such things, even though they understand that such sins are worthy of death. But then he begins to turn his attention back to the Jews. This is the Gentiles. This is primarily what the Gentiles do. The Jews, he's anticipating, are going to be agreeable to what he's saying. Yes, the wrath of God comes upon all that you just mentioned. All the things that you just listed, they would be agreeable to. But then Paul begins to turn his attention to them and indict them. He says in chapter 2, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. So he is indicting the Gentiles, all under sin, under the wrath of God. He's he's turning his attention now to his Jewish audience who believed at this particular time that salvation was just for them. The the Messiah was coming in order to redeem only them, though they did have a very skewed view of the Messiah, more as a political ruler than being the Son of God as the Scriptures had foretold. 
So he's indicting the Jews that they too are under the penalty of sin because they practice the same thing even though they themselves have the law of God. They know better. The Gentiles don't have the law of God. They have the law of God written on their hearts, and so they have a conscience that bears witness to the wrongs that they do, though they suppress that. But the Jews had the law of God. They had the clear revelation of God of what was right and what is not. And so Paul begins to speak to them, you are also under the judgment of God. He tells them also as you get into chapter 2 that they rely upon their heritage of being Jews. They rely upon the fact that they have the law. They rely upon the fact that they have circumcision. And Paul says, just because you bear the name Jew, just because you have the law of God, and just because you have the sign of the covenant of circumcision, this does not mean that you are spared from the wrath of God. For you too are under the wrath of God. And he begins to pull from many Old Testament passages as you get into chapter 3 in order to demonstrate to the covenant people that, yes, you too are under the judgment of God because you too are under sin. And that's where those many passages that are really taken from the Psalms, except for one, come into play in chapter 3 when he says that there are none righteous, not even one, there are none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is, not, there is none who does good, not even one. And he goes on. And he is taking Old Testament passages that the Jews themselves had, that they read, no doubt, and knew very, very clearly. And he's relaying them back to them. These are passages that you know. And these passages are acknowledging that you too are under sin because there are none righteous not even one. There are none who seek after God. Not even one. You all are under sin. And he's giving them, he's building this case in order that he may present the greatest news to all the people, Jew and Gentile alike. Whereas you are all under sin, he says, you depend on the law. The law is not going to save you because we acknowledge that there are none that will be justified by the works of the law. The law gives us knowledge of sin, as he says in verse 20. But then he gives the great news that he's leading all of this up to when he says in verse 21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." So here's the case. You depend on the law. The works of the law cannot save you. The law only gives a knowledge of sin. You depend on your name uh, being, bearing the name Jew. Just because you're part of the covenant people, you're still under sin. And you're still under the wrath of God. Just because you have the right of circumcision, you are still under sin. You are still under the judgment of God. How then may we escape? And this is where what we just read Paul brings to the forefront. It's apart from the law that the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been made known. 
It was witnessed in the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets foretold of this very thing that Paul's elaborating on. But it's the righteousness of God that is made known through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. And so he says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This is the answer to the dilemma, how, we, how may we be right with God? If the law isn't going to do it, what will? And Paul is bringing this to the forefront, that you're justified by a gift. You're justified by the grace of God. This is a gift of God. And you're justified on the basis of the one whom God displayed as a propitiation, which is a satisfaction in his blood through faith. So he is bringing out Christ and he's saying Christ is the propitiation. He's the satisfaction of our sins. He is the one who took the wrath of God off of the sinner, took it upon himself, satisfied the justice, justice of God in place of those who would believe. In the forbearance of God, he says, this is that patient restraint of the Lord whereby he refrains from exercising his judgment and forcing the payment for the debt of sin because it was at a proper time he would do so in Christ. He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that through Christ, through his life, through his death, through faith in him, God would remain just and be the justifier of the one who believes. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And he is affirming not only what he is saying here in chapter 4 by once again reiterating justification by faith, but he's using the two great examples from Jewish history in order to prove his point that justification by faith is what has always been. There was never a time in the history of Israel, in the history of the world, where anyone was ever saved by the works of the law. The law can only condemn. The law can only bring a knowledge of sin. And he uses Abraham as his prime example. The text in Genesis 15 says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He uses David. David in the Psalms, in verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. This is David writing in the Psalms. David was the one who penned Psalm 119, the longest chapter in all the scripture, and the entirety of it is all about the law of God, David's love for the law of God, upholding the law, law of God. It's sweeter than honey to his mouth, all of the wonderful things that he said of the law of God. But even David understood that you cannot be justified by the keeping of the law. And that's why he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account or whose sin the Lord will not impute to him, credit to him, because it is credited to another. So once again, he's laboring this whole point. Abraham and David both were justified by faith and by faith alone. Because we are justified by faith through Christ in chapter 5, as he has been continuing, we now have peace with God. Being justified by faith, we now have the love of God that has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us, he says. And he says those wonderful words to reiterate exactly what he is pointing to in the gospel. 
For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he's bringing them along. You're under sin. All of you are. All of you cannot keep the law. None of you can. The law only brings the knowledge of sin. Here's the good news of Christ. Christ is your satisfaction, and it's through faith in him you may be justified. And being justified by faith, we now have peace with God. We may now rejoice in the Lord. We'll be saved from the wrath to come, he says. We are now reconciled to him. We have received the reconciliation, even though we were once helpless, even though we were once ungodly. And as we've been going through in chapter 5, he's bringing out this very point. When it comes to the, the understanding of, so are we Jews better off than they? And that was a question he asked earlier. Paul says this. He says, all of you. And that's, that's the point. He's not distinguishing the Gentiles where you Jews weren't. He's, he's indicting everyone. All of you were connected to Adam because of one man. Because of one man's sin, because of one man's rebellion, death entered into the world, sin entered into the world, and death reigned. Death prevailed over all because now all have sinned. And he is using that universally, once again, to make it very clear to his Jewish audience, this includes you. You don't have special privilege here. You are under the wrath of God. You are under the judgment of God, just as the Gentiles. And the Jews were probably held more accountable than the Gentiles were because the Jews actually had the law of God. They rebelled specifically against God's commands that he made known to them. He brings out the contrast between Adam and Christ. All of you are connected to Adam. Adam's sin, his original sin, the very first sin is imputed to you, to everyone, so that you are automatically born sinners. No one is born innocent. None. All of you have the sin of Adam imputed to you, besides the fact of the sins that you commit your own self. But the last Adam has come, that in him you may be justified before God. In him you may have peace with God. As we've been talking about the past number of weeks, that on the day that you stand before the Lord, you're going to be represented by one of two men, either Adam or Christ. And so there's a lot of contrasting here of Adam and Christ throughout this, this whole uh, of chapter 5 for the most part. And so as Paul is now narrowing the argument here, he's concluding the argument rather, he's still contrasting that of Christ and of Adam, but he does anticipate a question. He anticipates the question by the Jews, okay, if the law only brings the knowledge of sin and the law is not what will be the, the, the factor of us being justified before God, what's the purpose of the law? What about the law? And he anticipates that question because the law was indeed vital to the covenant people. The law distinguished them from the other nations. If you hold your place there, looking at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, you have this said. Actually, verse 6, we'll start there. So keep and do them, 
For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? You also have not only the giving of the law which distinguishes them above all the other nations in the world, but it's by the upholding of the law and the keeping of the law, the doing of the law, whereby they may keep covenant with God. You have in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, the blessings and the curses. If you rebel against the Lord, this is what you will face. If you keep the commandments of the Lord, this is the blessing that you will receive. So the law was very, very important. But we begin to understand even more, not only from those Old Testament passages we looked at, but the ones we will look at today as far as what Paul is saying here, of what the purpose of the law was. Again, it never... It was never a matter of bringing salvation. It was establishing righteousness in the nation, how they should live before God, but no one was ever saved by the keeping of the law. So the Jew may ask, so if what you're saying is right, speaking to the Apostle Paul, where does the law fit in if salvation is by faith and not by the works of the law? And this is what we're looking at today. We'll see once again that Christ and Christ alone is the foundation of our, uh, our, of our justification before God. He's the only means that God has appointed whereby we may be justified. We'll see also that God declares us to be something that we're not. God declares you to be just. God declares you to be righteous before you are actually made righteous. We see the purpose of the law. That the law condemns. Shows us our sin, but also the law guides us into righteousness. So I pray as we work our way through this that it will once again bring encouragement to our hearts, uh, giving us great assurance of our salvation in Christ and Christ alone, and giving us an understanding also of what he has done and how he uh, has given us, given us the guide of this law in order to guide us through life. So if you would... Please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Romans chapter 5, beginning of verse 18. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. And let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we humbly come into your presence. Father, we ask that by the Spirit of God that our minds would be open, our hearts would be open to receive what you have prepared for us in your word. We pray that Christ our Lord would speak to our hearts. 
using his word and applying it by the spirit of God to us to give us a greater understanding of the salvation that we have freely received in Christ, of what he has done for us, and, Father, of what he desires of us as, as we walk through life. Father, I pray that ultimately your name would be glorified, Christ would be magnified in our hearts, and the Spirit would rejoice among your people, doing a great work within us, conforming us to be more like your Son. Father, bless the preaching of your word. May it accomplish all you desire in us. For in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so as we see, once again, Paul is concluding his argument here. His argument, as we have been going over, is to demonstrate to both Jew and Gentile that one can only be justified in the sight of God through faith and faith alone in Christ alone. And you see that he is summing this up because in verse 18, he says, so then, or some of your translations may say, therefore, he's bringing the conclusion here, stressing his decisive conclusion, the summary of the whole passage here. And he's bringing out once again, the, on what basis are we justified before God? And it's through the one Christ Jesus. He says, so then... Or therefore, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. This is an argument that he's been giving already. When Adam sinned, we sinned in Adam. He was our federal head. He represented all of humanity. And his sin is now imputed to all. That's what the apostle says in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We have the one federal head, Adam, who represented the entire human race. And when he fell and he rebelled, all fell with him. Now, understand something, and it's necessary that we understand this, because it can seem like a very small thing. It seems... You know, like for even uh, like R.C. Sproul, and I know most everyone has seen the video of R.C. Sproul when he was asked the question, why was the punishment for Adam's sin so severe? Because it's just like, so he ate the fruit that he wasn't supposed to eat. Okay, why is that such a bad thing? Yes, he disobeyed the command of the Lord. But we have to see you know, just how much rebellion was involved here. Now, we understand that Eve was deceived but Adam freely took, and sin is attributed to Adam, not Eve. Adam was the federal head. But think about what all took place. When Satan is tempting Eve, did God really say, you will not, you know, he's, he's saying, he's, doubt, he's making her to doubt what the Lord said, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you will be like him, knowing both good and evil. And so not only is he causing doubt in her based on what the Lord had said, he's causing doubt in her based on his character, that God is somehow withholding something good. And so then she blatantly allies herself with the enemy in rebellion against God, and Adam 
does as well. So this is a great rebellion that is taking place here. It's not just a matter of eating a piece of fruit. It's allying yourself with the enemy, the epitome of evil and rebellion against the holy God. But the good news came thereafter. And this good news that came thereafter, mentioned in Genesis 3.15, is the very news that Paul is elaborating on here. He says to the woman, he says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and her, between your seed and her seed. And what's he saying? You all have allied yourself. I'm going to make enmity to be between you two. He's saying to Satan himself, she allied herself with you against me, but you can't have her. I'm going to redeem her. And so I'm going to put enmity between your seed and and her seed. He's going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel. That's the promise of the Redeemer all the way back in Genesis 3.15, which institutes the covenant of grace that we see throughout the flow of Old Testament history into the new. That God is bringing about the one who will bring back redemption, who will reconcile the ones back to himself that will be the new federal head. Whereas in Adam all die, all are spiritually dead, a new federal head is coming and he is referred to as the last Adam. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, this is universal, all that are connected to Adam, even so... Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, as we've been talking about within this whole section of God's word, that you have to understand these words by the qualifying passage. What I mean by that is, you've heard the saying, as we talked about last week, that all means all, and that's all all means. Well, we know right off the bat that's not right. If we were to say, all of us are going to the restaurant. We don't mean that everyone in the world is going to the restaurant. We mean our group is going to the restaurant. It's the same kind of qualifier here. All who are connected to Adam, which is universal because all mankind is connected to Adam, are regarded as guilty, are regarded as sinners. The verdict laid to them is guilty. But all who are connected to Christ, and who are those who are connected to Christ but those who have received this gift of righteousness through faith. And that's what he says in chapter 3. That's what he's elaborating on further. All those who are connected to Christ is who is in view here. Their result is justification of life. If we take the word all here in the same manner that we take all in the first portion of verse 18... We would have to be universalists. We would have to say that all mankind is going to heaven regardless if they ever believe or they don't believe because Christ has paid the penalty. All men are dead in Adam. All men are made alive in Christ. But we know that's not so. We know that people are going to die and they are going to endure the righteous judgment of God in hell because the scripture affirms that to us. So the word all has to be qualified by the passage itself, and it is referring to all who are connected to Christ, who are represented by Christ, who have placed faith in Christ, who believe. He is now the new federal head. And by his one act of righteousness, it results in justification of life to all who are connected to him. Whereas Adam was created innocent, 
He was created in a perfect state. He sinned. He didn't just miss the mark. He transgressed the law of God. He blatantly went another way is the idea there. The last Adam, the Lord Jesus, is the one who is able to reconcile us back through his work. We are saved by works, just not ours. His work. And again, as we're talking about the work of Christ, that is the basis for our justification before God, we have to remember these very things. God is absolute perfection. God is holy. He's in a category all to himself. That's what the word means. Holy. It means he's a cut above us. A category all to himself. Absolute perfection in everything he does and in his being. And his holiness demands justice for sin. In order to come into his presence, it must be perfection. You must be perfect. And you can't do it, and I can't do it, because Adam's sin has been imputed to us first and foremost. And we sin. So this is why it was necessary, once again, as we talk about the work of Christ, this is why it was necessary for Christ not just to come to earth to go straight to the cross, but for Christ to come to the earth, the God-man, fully God, fully man, or truly God, truly man, as the, the creeds say, a perfect representative of humanity, a perfect representative of the divine. This is why it was necessary that he be born of a virgin to break the cycle, for one, of inheriting original sin, having Adam's sin imputed to all of his posterity. This is why it was necessary that Christ live out his life perfectly. And he lived for 30 years before he ever began his ministry as the Messiah, before he ever did his first miracle. Why? And it goes back to that truth again. He was actively fulfilling the law of God to its perfection, doing the very thing that the first Adam could not do. Keeping covenant with God. Perfectly obeying His law. Being declared righteous because of His own righteous works. And it is His life, His perfection, that is imputed to you through faith. And then we look at the cross. We see what had occurred on the cross as we read in Romans chapter 3 that he was our propitiation, our satisfaction. We remember this, that yes, every, everything that, that was done to Christ the man, the beating that he took, them ripping out his, his, the hair of his beard, beating him, putting the crown of thorns on his head, letting the, the thorns sink into his head, taking all the lashes that he did of the cat of nine tails, everything he felt, absolutely, without question. The pain that he felt when he was nailed to the cross, the nails going in his hands and his feet, the agony of trying to pull yourself up in order to take a breath, he felt all of that. But I want to be careful, but just listen. This was not what atoned for your sins. Something else happened while he was on the cross. Yes, he felt all the agony of what man had done to him. But what God demands is justice for breaking his law. And the debt must be paid to God, not to man. And so this is where we understand that God, the Holy One, 
poured out his righteous wrath out upon his son while his son is hanging on the cross. And this is when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because we know that this is the moment in which Christ begins to pay the penalty of all those who would believe in him as he endures their judgment, as he endures their punishment, their condemnation. God is pouring his wrath out upon his only son. When Christ says it's finished, this means Christ satisfied the justice of God. And so when you're looking at the complete work of Christ, it is his life that you're saved by. It is his death that you're saved by. It's his resurrection that you are saved by. It's his, it's his work as our mediator now that you are saved by. His life is imputed to you through faith that when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done, his life and his death, his righteousness is credited to your account as if you had done it, as if you had kept the law of God to its perfection. Your unrighteousness is credited to him, and he paid the penalty on the cross for it. So here you have the great exchange that had taken place. Through his obedience, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross is what Paul says in Philippians 2, as a result of what he did. He and he alone. You who believe are now justified in the sight of God. You are declared to be what Christ actually is. But it's all based upon him. It's all based in what he had done. His completed work and his work and the whole point of what Paul is doing by contrasting Adam and Christ is to demonstrate that what Christ brings is far greater than what Adam lost. Christ brings reconciliation. Christ brings peace. Christ brings hope, true hope. He was the one in whom we have redemption, he alone. And there's a purpose by emphasizing that. Because if the whole point of this is to prove to the Jew, the, his Jewish audience, you are not saved by works, then this is also to demonstrate to us as well, you are not saved by your works. There is only one that's being mentioned here as far as the basis of our justification. And it isn't you. And it isn't me. And thank the Lord that it is not. It is all him. That's why the object of your faith is Christ and Christ alone. The object of your faith is not you. But him outside of yourself, you have to look outside of yourself and you have to behold the son, the one who who completed it all. And there is nothing left to do when he says it is finished. He says it is paid. It's paid in full. And the father accepted his sacrifice on your behalf when he raised him up from the dead. If we may wonder but did Christ really die for these particular sins? If the scripture affirms that Christ died for your sins, past, present, and future, and the Father raised him up from the dead, that means the Father accepted the sacrifice on your behalf for all your sins. And there are none left to pay for. We are justified through Christ. Through Christ alone. And because of that, we have life we have justification of life. We have life in him even now as we are here. We have life in him whenever we go 
to be with Christ in what's referred to as the intermediate state. You think of how death is being referred to. Death is a very unnatural occurrence in life. We try to sp- we we try to put spins on it and everything else in order to lessen the pain of death. But death is an unnatural occurrence because God created you body and soul. And something unnatural happens at death. Your body goes to the dust of the earth. Your spirit goes home to be with the Lord until the resurrection occurs. But when that does happen and you go home to be with the Lord then you, you do have life and you do have eternal life. And then when the consummation of all things comes and you are glorified in him, re- receiving a physical glorified body, you have life again. You have life to look forward to on account of the one, Christ Jesus. You are justified through Christ. And then verse 19, which is a very comforting passage as well. Verse 19, he is saying something about our justification. And this is important because we often think to ourselves, okay, the scripture affirms that I'm justified before God. I'm declared not guilty, but I really don't feel like it. I don't feel righteous. I don't feel just. The scripture affirms that you are a saint. Paul opens up his epistles a number of times to the saints who are at Rome, to the saints who are in Galatia, etc., etc. And this means holy ones. And we think to ourselves, I don't feel holy. I definitely don't feel holy. Do you feel holy? So how do we account for that? Because the way that we feel in our experience oftentimes deters us from what we know to be true. And this is why this is important here. He says in verse 19, for as through, he's once again reiterating these truths again, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many who were connected to Adam were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Now, this is, this word that's being used here is very important. This word made, it doesn't mean that God is making you righteous, and when this process is complete, then he will declare you to be righteous. He's declaring you here to be something that you are not. Not yet. Because the word made actually means constituted, assigned, appointed. So through the one man's disobedience, the many were constituted guilty. Declared guilty. But through the act of the one, the righteous act, the obedience of the one, the many will be constituted or assigned or appointed righteous. It's saying something about you in the sense of your justification being something that is declared about you. It's not something that is done to you. You are not made to be just, and then you are declared just. You are declared to be just on the count of the righteousness of Christ, and at the proper time, you will be made whole. Justification is a forensic term. It's a legal term. It's as if you were standing there, and again, if, if we were looking at this in, in a courtroom setting, you have those that are standing here who are connected to Adam, having Adam as their representative. You have those over here that are standing having Christ as a representative, and it's as if 
the judge of all the earth, looks at the one who is standing next to his son, clothed in the righteousness of his son. He looks and he says, not guilty. And you're not guilty on account of him. You are declared to be something that you're not. Martin Luther, and you, I know you've all seen t-shirts or cups or various things like that. Let's say, simul justus et peccator. And it means, at the same time, sinner and saint. At the same time, you still sin, but you are declared to be a saint. You are declared to be just in the sight of God. You don't bear the title sinner. Now you bear the title son of God, daughter of God, saint. And it's through the one man's obedience that this comes to us. We are not made just, we are declared to be just. We're declared to be just on account of the righteousness of Christ. Again, the emphasis here is it's not on your works. It's not on your ceremonies or your rituals or any of these things. It's, it's based in him. This is why Isaiah writes in Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with the robe of righteousness. And that's what God does for those that are now in Christ. He clothes them, as it were, with the righteousness of his son. You have a new robe. And it's the robe of Christ. Anybody ever read the, the book by R.C. Sproul, The Priest with Dirty Robes? You'd read that. A great picture of that is taken in Zechariah chapter 4 where you have Joshua standing before the Lord and Satan standing there to accuse him. And the Lord rebukes Satan and he says to the attending angel there, take off his garment and give him festal robes. And that's what God does in justification. He takes off your dirty unrighteousness and he clothes you with the righteousness of the perfect one, the holy one. And because you are now wrapped with the garments of salvation, you are declared to be not guilty. You are declared to be just in the sight of God, righteous in the sight of God. One writer says, if in Adam we are sinners, if in Christ we are righteous. It's a very true statement. What's the emphasis again? There is no you in this passage. It's all, once again, magnifying the Son of God. So we have justification through Christ. Our justification is something declared about us because of the righteousness of Christ. So the question then comes, well, what about the law? Where does the law fit into all of this? Well, it is not what is often said that we are under Grace, we are not under law, as if, once again, what happens when this is said is that it's placing a huge wedge in between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. This was all law. This was a situation in which you had to keep all the law in order to be saved, and now we are under grace in Christ. And the answer to that is, 
Absolutely not. You have been under grace. All mankind has been under grace since Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Always. No, none other could ever pay the penalty of sin. If that was possible, then it would be unnecessary for Christ to have even come. If you can be saved and you can be justified in the sight of God by keeping the ceremonial law, then it, why, why did Christ have to come? Why did the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, have to take the form of man and endure all the pain and suffering that he did if there was another way? There's never been another way. The ceremonial law foreshadowed what he would do. And when Christ died, Christ paid the penalty. He not only paid the penalty for everyone at that particular time and in the future, he paid the penalty for all the saints in the Old Testament as well. All human history centers on Christ. So it's, it's not a situation in which the law is done away because now we're under grace. Paul would even say in chapter 3, verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. Or some of your translations may say, God forbid. On the contrary, we establish the law. Where does the law fit in here? Well, here's what he says. He says the law came. This is very interesting what Paul says. The law came in or came alongside so that the transgression would increase. So that the transgression would increase. He says earlier that death reigned from the time of Adam until Moses. Death was upon all. For all those who didn't sin in the likeness of Adam's sin. Which is blatantly disregarding the law of God and rebelling against it. But at the time of Moses. Then you have the law that is given. The Jews may regard this as a time in which now the law is given. We can do those things and be saved. And what Paul's saying is no. The law came so that the transgression would increase. Not so that you may have justification before God. Now, what does he mean by that? That is language that would probably have shocked his Jewish audience. What do you mean? What does that even mean? The law came in so that the transgression would increase? Well, here's what he says in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, he says very similar language, and then we'll go to Galatians. But in chapter 15, the great resurrection passage of 1 Corinthians, he says, verse 55, we'll start there, just to put everything in context. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Listen to what he says. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The power of sin is the law? Hmm. In Galatians chapter 3, this is a little lengthy, but think of what the apostle is saying here beginning in verse 15 as he gives the intent of the law. He says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations even though it is only a man's covenant. Yet when... <clears throat> yet when... It has been ratified. No one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. 
What I am saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Remember, the promise to Abraham was in you, in your seed, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Very same thing he's saying. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only, is, is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So, why the law? It was added because of transgression. The law is, is good and it's holy, is what Paul says in Romans 7. And yet, the law is a mirror. That when you hold up the righteousness of the law, we see all of our sins, we see all of our blemishes. And what previously could have been considered um, maybe a good deed or a bad deed, depending on how much people are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, when you hold up the righteous law of God, it is very, very plain. This is sin before God. And so the law increased sin in the sense that it clarified even more so of the righteous standard of God before man. So here we're getting into some things where you're looking at the threefold division of the law, what the law does. As we're reading here, the law shows us our sin. It's a tutor that leads us to Christ. The law is the expression of the holiness of God, the holy character of God. And when you look at the law, you realize very, very, very clearly, I can't do that. I've already failed. When you look at the Ten Commandments, how many of those have we broken? And how often have we broken them? We can't do it. So you have the first use of the law, which is as a tutor to point us to Christ. To show us our sin. The law can only condemn. It cannot save. With regards to salvation, it can only condemn cannot save and so the law was given so that the transgression would increase that we would see very clearly our shortcomings that we are not righteous not even one of us but here's the good news but where sin increased grace abounded all the more even though sin was increased the knowledge of sin was increased because we had an even clearer understanding of what we have done. It brings that heightened sense of sin in our lives as we look to the law. Yet Paul says that where sin increased, the knowledge of sin increased. Grace abounded all the more. This is a compound word which means superabounded. Sin has increased 
The knowledge of sin has increased our transgressions, increased our condemnation, but the grace of God that is given in Christ has superabounded, and that's what the word means. It means superabounded. Grace has superabounded. Superabounded all the more. It's prevailed all the more. It's increased all the more. It's overflowing all the more. That the, and he's contrasting again that the grace of God is greater than your sin. The grace of God is greater than all your transgressions and in all your rebellion. There is, there is not a sense in which there are certain sins that you can commit that will keep you from the grace of God. Paul says that there's nothing that will keep you from the love of God. There is no sin. Because the grace of God abounds even more. Even in view of an increasing of sin and the knowledge of sin, grace abounds all the more. That should be very comforting. We have certain sins in our own life that we think of when we say, how did I ever do that? How was that ever possible that I committed that? It's something that haunts us. Am I really saved? Look at what I did. Look at what I said. We have those thoughts often that perhaps go through our minds. But again, here's what he says. Grace abounds all the more. You have had a number of contrasts here in chapter 5 from the lesser to the greater. And this is another one. Sin increased, but this is to show that God's grace increased all the more and is overflowing. Sometimes this is not at all to give us a, a license to sin, as the apostle will say in the very, very first verse of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? God forbid. But the knowledge of our own sin and the awareness of the grace of God that abounds even more can be used in the sense of leading us to cling to Christ even more. As we recognize our sin and we recognize our shortcoming and the fact that God still sent Christ to die for us at, at, at the right time, us ungodly people, our sin can drive us to Christ even more, to be so, more, so much more thankful and appreciative. This is what I've done, but what I've done has no hindrance on what you have done. Anything that I do can never compare to what you have done for me. Grace abounds all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, death passed upon all because of sin, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The grace would take the place of the evil monarch as death and sin are personified here. As Dr. Lawson said, that death is an evil tyrant, an evil monarch. Now it's sin. Sin reigned in death. And because of the one who came, who lived the life that God demands of us, who paid the penalty in our place, that the grace of God is now bestowed upon you, that you have received the favor of God on account of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
So now that grace would reign in your life. Grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. And here we can kind of, we can get an understanding too of what, where the law fits in. Because all this is connected to what he says in verse 20 about the law. The grace that is now granted to you that reigns through righteousness to eternal life. What does that mean? Whereas before we could only sin, transgressions increasing under the wrath of God, and now because of the grace of God we've been given a new path in life to walk in paths of righteousness for His name's sake and to look forward to the hope that we have in Him. And that path of righteousness is grounded in the law of God. Martin Luther said this. He says that the Lord uses the law as a rod to beat me to Christ. Then he gives it to me as a walking stick to walk me through life. When you wonder what it is that God requires of us or what God is pleased with, we look to the law. We see that these things are good because it, they're, they're part of the righteous character of God. It's the expression of the holiness of God is the law. When we talk about being conformed to the image of the Son, this is very important. When the scripture affirms to us in Romans 8, for example, that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. This isn't some arbitrary thing that is being mentioned here. When you think about what Christ has done. He actively fulfilled the law of God to its perfection. He perfectly obeyed the law of God. So that if we are being conformed to the image of Christ, what then is the basis by which we are able to walk through life in righteousness and in holiness of the truth with the law of God? So from the time of the early church through the time of the Reformation, you had the threefold division of the law. The first use of the law was to expose our sin. The second use of the law was to restrain evil in society that Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 1. And the third use of the law is to walk us through life. The law is good. The law is holy. As Paul says in Romans 7, but the law is not the means by which you are saved. We do the things of the law, not for salvation, but because of our salvation. We know that it's good and right in the sight of God. Jesus himself says, if you love me, keep my commandments. What is he referring to? He's referring to what was previously written. The law is our tutor to lead us to Christ, that leads us to Christ it is our walking stick to lead us through life. But never has it ever been that we are saved on the basis of the law. Now, looking at all of this, he's summing up justification by faith. Once again, be reminded of this. There is only one being mentioned in the passage as far as the basis of your justification before God. You're not in the passage. You receive the benefits of the one who is mentioned in the passage. Christ is the one 
that, that merited salvation for all of us. Christ is the one who by his works was declared righteous, who is the one who kept the first covenant that the first Adam couldn't keep. And recognize this, that even though sometimes you don't feel just and you don't feel righteous and you don't feel holy, remember that justification is something that, is, that God declares about you. He declares you to be just before you actually become just. And it's based in the work of Christ. You are indeed saints before God. And you are holy ones. You've been set apart as holy on account of the Son. The law can only condemn. The law has no salvific element to it. But it is the means whereby we may understand what is pleasing before God and how we may live a life that is pleasing to Him. To show our love, to show our gratefulness, to show our appreciation. So let us not confuse the two. The things of the law we do to demonstrate our love. The love of God was demonstrated to us by sending Christ who completed it all. And if you do not know Christ, then this I pray that you will consider the things that have been spoken of this morning. Recognizing that you cannot save yourself, but recognizing that salvation is given only in one, and that is Christ Jesus. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose again to give you the promise of eternal life, that if you believe upon him, you may receive the great blessing of having peace with God and the reconciliation. We will stop there. We will continue next Lord's Day. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you. Thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you, Father, that salvation is not our own doing, but it is all Christ. Thank you that your grace abounds all the more. That though we have committed heinous sin, yet your grace abounds all the more. Father, thank you for the forgiveness that we have received in Christ, that no sin can keep us from your love. As your servant, Charles Spurgeon, said, sin may be a river, but grace is an ocean. Sin may be a mountain, but grace is like Noah's flood, which prevailed over the tops of the mountains, 15 cubits. Your grace is greater and higher than all all things that we could ever do. Thank you for that great grace. I pray, Father, that you would apply the passage to our hearts by the Spirit of God. Help us to walk in paths of righteousness for your name's sake, to walk worthy of our calling, that you would be pleased with our lives, and that we may glorify you all the more as we live in view of what Christ has accomplished. May you be glorified in your people. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen.